that's just not a place they want to go because they're pampered little fucks. Welcome to episode number 78 of Grumpy Old Ben's for Monday, July 20th, 2020. I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of Middle America, just outside of Chirac, where the rains have stopped, the sun is out, but people are still shooting each other. And today, a very special Grumpy Old Ben's as we are 100% less Bemrose today, and instead being joined by Sir Spencer, if you're on the No Agenda Social or on the Twitters. Or on just about everywhere else, I guess uh, you are, Sir Spencer. Sir Spencer, uh, known in many places as yes, I mean, it's me. Thanks for having me. Were you united by uh, Adam Curry or the Queen of England? That's always a good way, way place to start. I mean, because sooner or later we'll run into an actual knight. Hey, why not both? That could be. That would it's be uh, the bucket list goals. There you go. That would be the ultimate right there. It would be a double knight. So then you'd mm-hmm. have to be Sir Sir Spencer. I'm much prouder of the uh, the Adam Curry knighting. Well, he is the pod father, the guy that created the system that everybody is using for podcasting, even though he rarely gets the full credit that he deserves. That's why it was nice to see him on the Joe Rogan show, who is arguably the biggest podcaster of all time, even though he's doing video and all that. He's still the biggest podcaster of all time. And he yep. gave Adam the credit he deserved. So that was nice. It was great to see. Yeah, the Rogan show was the first show that I ever listened to as far as podcasting goes. Um, I started working at this cookie shop, so I was just the dough boy and I'd come in. I'd just be in my own zone making the dough for like seven or eight hours at a time. So podcasts were perfect for me. And I think I was just talking on the face bags about, oh, Joe Rogan, this, this, this. And somebody hit me in the mouth right away. I was like, try no agenda. And from then on, it was harder to listen to other shows, even the Rogan show, just because A, you would hear a lot of the memes. Yes. That had been deconstructed and then they'd be re repropagated on Rogan's show. And you'd be like, no, now I know why this is bullcrap. Well, that's and, the one thing no agenda does better than most is they see the trend before anybody else does. They really do have that uh, thumb on the pulse, um, which is why it's so helpful. And of course, I've been overboard a few times in the years, but over the years, but uh, Lorian and I were actually looking back at old shows, trying to find some of the old uh, donation segment notes that. Um, we had sent in and I was able to pinpoint it was like right before Christmas 2013 when I started listening and the first donation I did was uh for 2033 it was like the ultimate stonation <laughs> so I came up with the name but Dvorak had said uh it's come in before he's like we've had this before but we never really picked up on it but when I sent it in and named it the ultimate stonation he put it in the newsletter and fished like three more of them out of the out of sending it out in the newsletter so which is something that's interesting with the value for value model. And it's been talked to death by Adam when he, you know, a lot of people just still don't get it. And I see a lot of people that come from more of the mainstream world that I don't think still understand that. The one guy did a whole podcast on him over on Random Thoughts, Jonathan Brandmeyer, Chicago DJ, who was in radio for decades and decades. And now we all know the radio landscape is changing because, you know, talk radio, comedy radio was much harder to do in a woke world. 
It's also much harder to do in a world where people don't have to listen to commercials nonstop, which is the most horrible thing about terrestrial radio, even if the content is good. And the other part is nobody needs traffic and weather on the ones anymore because you have phones to give you all of this information. So for that reason, radio has changed. And Jonathan Brandmeier now is doing a podcast on most Saturdays, which he's reproducing his radio show. And he does the call ins and all this other stuff, because that was always a big part of the show. And that's the one thing that's hard to do with the podcast before you have a fan base. No agenda you can see now, even though they don't take calls. As you said, you wrote in a letter and there is a lot of content that comes in from the producers sending an audio, sending in the donation letters and all of that. But now that Brandmeier is doing a podcast, he's talking about, you know, not really knowing how to monetize. And it's interesting yeah. to me because I think there's a lot of people that you know, the other big radio legend here in Chicago, Steve Dahl, went the route of I'm going to charge 10 bucks a month for my podcast. And he's doing five podcasts a week, I think about an hour a piece. But that's a set 10 bucks a month where, as you know, with no agenda, it's like, OK, you're not going to get everybody right. to pay. But there's a lot of episodes of no agenda that have the 500 to 1000 or more from a single donation and that takes up a lot of slack, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think we were talking about this on the last bowl after bowl, like the beauty of the value for value model is that you're allowing the numbers and the audience to work for you rather than limiting anyone to a certain thing. Like in the, in the more po traditional or the more, I guess, popular models where you have to decide, Oh, am I going to sell stamps.com and boner pills? Right. Or am I going to, Meundies. you know, I think it was the, I think it was Adam who was playing the clip of that girl, that content creator who was just like uh, having a meltdown over like nobody will nobody will do this five dollar a month Patreon thing. And it's like, well, nobody will do anything at all, probably. But if you leave the ceiling off, like you can't just pigeonhole your people into giving either nothing or five dollars. That's your two options. Like uh, the open ended question to someone of what value do you get out of this is the perfect way to approach everyone. because someone it's just it's just such a subjective question what value do you get well what value you know what's your average income what kind of disposable income do you have what do you spend on entertainment what do you spend that's so different for all of us and the fact that not only can you kind of customize the value that you get and put that in a number and send it back to them telling them hey this is what you gave me but there's other ways too with end of show clips with uh, all sorts of different production that you can send into the show there's so many ways to give outside of money that it's actually incredibly interactive how they are uh, or how interactive they are, I should say, for a show, even without any call in or voicemail or anything like that. Right. They, yeah, it's a very hard job to do when you're doing it yourself. The fact that and I can't even imagine. I mean, besides when he when Adam was actually email bombed on a normal week, I can't imagine the amount of emails that come in and I get it. A lot of people never will send something in if they see an article because there is that herd mentality that, well, you know, I, if I'm seeing this article, Adam's seen it or John's seen it or somebody else has already sent it to them. Sure. But I think there's enough people that send like everything that they they see. And I'm sure, well, uh, you know, and that, you know, the the odds are really good if like people are sending it to John. John blocks a lot of like the high signal. So <laughs> if you're sending stuff to John. You know, maybe the three guys that were going to send the story to John are all blocked. And so 
you Dvorak, should just still send it. Yeah, he gets no spam. So there's that. The, he, gets no, he gets no anything. The social media is interesting. And it is interesting to hear Dvorak talking about even how No Agenda Social is getting annoying to him. Sure. Because of the interlopers or, you know, my, the infiltrators. My initial reaction to that was kind of like, I wanted to give pushback because I feel like he was overreacting, which is kind of his style anyway. I don't really feel like those two guys you mentioned were connected with like the total dog shit that is Reddit. And I know what he's talking about with a few problem accounts over there that like, it's almost like they're paid to just shit on the show and they've yes. done it for years. Um, that's how like, that's the regularity with which it happens. And that's like the, it's like, if you hate a show so much, then why have you spent like two or three years, like four times a week, like shitting all over it in the post? That's well, not what's going on on NAS, but I also kind of reading the threads more understood why it why it rubbed us for the wrong way. Like, I get it for sure. Well, and I think there are a lot of people that are literally hired to go and disrupt um, the social media. And it is it yeah, is not going to stop at Twitter. Right. Well, yeah. and that's the thing is uh, and I've experienced the same phenomenon with my friends when I try to hit them in the mouth sometimes if you're getting political input that doesn't align with what you're used to, you know, seeing, we usually just filter it towards the, the biases that we have, then it's going to, you're going to automatically just put that on the opposite side of the coin instead of saying, you know, Hey, this is kind of a middle ground. The whole concept of no agenda is just that, you know, like there isn't, there isn't a driving agenda on the table. So if you're not used to that, then you just see it as the other side. I've had right. friends that are like, oh, so these guys are Russian stooges, huh? Like, right. I've literally had people say that to me, like after like four minutes of the show, like I turn it on for four minutes and that's what they're saying. And it's like, no, no, that's not what's going on here. Well, it's amazing how much that's happening. If you expose somebody to something that is out of their wheelhouse or out of their beliefs that they're going to immediately go to, oh, gee, yeah, it's, it's their, you know, a Trump supporter or whatever it is. Which, I mean, I, it seemed like Bemrose was a little more surprised than I would have expected when he was talking about the Michelle Obama podcast. And I'm like, well, I'd listen to her podcast if it's authentic. I'd be interested to hear what she has to say. It's, sure. you know, keeping up with what, you know, the other side is, if you can put that in air quotes, is yeah. what you need to do in politics. You at least get good clips out of it, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. either it's like you can bring stuff to the table and say, well, look. She's a completely rational person when speaking about this, as I think I mentioned on the grumpy old Ben's uh, when you come to nutrition in America, I think it could be better. I just don't think it should be forced when right. you go to school and not have any other choices. But, you know, she has a point. Nutrition is really crappy and maybe we should be talking about that. And you, you're right. You can bring a clip that either like, well, hey, look, this this is rational and this seems like something everybody can get behind or it's the other side, which is. Hey, she said this, and this is absolutely nuts, and this will be entertaining to rip it apart. Right. But yeah, you're absolutely right. If you if you're not if you're just rejecting any message that isn't, you know, pre-screened for your um in, enormous amygdala to interpret, then um you're never gonna learn anything. You're not gonna have your real finger on the pulse. My uh kind of political history, I came up in activism uh as an issues activist, mainly the drug war and ending cannabis prohibition and so we always had to do bipartisan stuff especially in a 
on an issue that lines up with both sides of the aisle, you know, like the conservative small government argument is definitely there and the liberal um, less punishment argument is also definitely there. So, you know, my whole activism career was loaded with, you know, bipartisan outreach and there was never anybody I wouldn't talk to just because of what their political stripe was. You know, it was our job to talk to everybody. And that seems to be where we are at. And it's not just I mean, the sad thing is, it's not just on the social medias that I would get because we know there are the troll farms. You can buy trolls out of Russia and other places and you know, give them a couple thousand dollars and they will give you thousands of messages, slamming people looking, you know, doing keyword searches and getting involved in conversations just to spread whatever narrative that you want them to spread. But the fact that this seems like it's now completely infiltrated the news media and it's completely infiltrated our government at the highest levels that we used to. And I've said this, it seems like a thousand times as a kid, I understood Republicans and Democrats were different, but I got the vibe that three years out of the four, they worked together to actually do something. And then one year out of those four, they went to battle when it was the presidential election time. And that has changed now to they're at battle every day of every year. And if the Republicans come up with something, the Democrats have to hate it and be against it and vice versa. And that is the problem that we're dealing with now because Trump has done some really good things and nobody will ever on the other side will ever give him credit for it. And right. That, yep. That's that's very, very divisive. And everything today seems to be divisive. Yeah, it's just like uh, you can't even make any sort of statement without it being politically analyzed. And then you're attacked for like what side you're perceived to be on, which I don't know for an independent like me, it's always it always comes down to frustration. And it's funny, too, even in like the community, you know, we talked a little bit about like paid trolls and paid shills. But this wild Corona narrative that we're under, I mean, I think people are really being affected by it even even independent people like me even people that you see on the stream so like getting back to the no agenda stream complaint that Dvorak had I don't really think those guys are like paid trolls or shills I think they're just like one of the guys was just he lives in New York City and has for decades claimed to have been recently knighted and he's had like a front row seat and he just kept talking about how he's boots on the ground in this crisis and the numbers are really bad and there's deaths. And like, you know, he had an anecdotal story of somebody in his family going to a tent hospital. And it's sort of like, I don't know, for, for me being outside of it and I'm hearing him talk, what I hear is like a guy who came after seeing like uh, a David Blaine show. And he's like, no man, you don't understand. I was boots on the ground at the David Blaine show and that motherfucker can levitate. I saw it with my <laughs> eyes, you know? And you've just got to be like, okay, like you had a front row seat to the theater. So yeah, it's going to like affect you deeply. And you're like, really, he was asking the community to set him straight and just be like, am I way? He was like being like, am I way off base here? But then when everybody would come in and like, just give their opinions or like, you know, say, well, this is what I've been seeing. This is what I think. He just like reject, reject, reject outright. And I think a lot of us are if we're not emotionally manipulated on that level from all of this, we are getting like where I'm at, I'm kind of getting resistance fatigue where I'm kind of like, I don't want to go anywhere with a mask on. I see the sign that says I have to wear a mask. I do not believe that like I can be legally compelled to. And so like, 
every fucking store you walk in nowadays, you have to make that decision. Am I going to do the fight here? Am I going to have the fight here? Am I going to have the fight here? Or am I just going to put it on and like get in and out? Cause I'm like, stop, like I'm running out of fucks to give on this, you know? Well, and the narrative keeps changing because we were originally told that masks don't help. You shouldn't be wearing masks. And then we were told by Fauci specifically that he was lying about that just so people didn't go and grab masks that the health providers could get. And that doesn't make sense in the guise that you're telling people that you can wear a gator, you can wear a bandana, you can wear anything over right. your face. So what, what the hell? Then the argument that you didn't want people going to buy the other masks doesn't make sense because if you were to said hey just putting a bandana that you can make at home over your face is just as good as the mask you can go buy in the store then there wouldn't have been a run so that doesn't make any sense and once there are so many of these inconsistencies that come out it doesn't matter whether it's covid or anything else the inconsistencies are what drive people to the conspiracy theories to question what's really going on and getting an honest answer with a corrupt media I can understand where people are coming from. I mean, there's no question that COVID-19 seems to exist. I mean, we know a guy that died of it, and I believe that is what he had. So I believe there is a virus going on. But right now, the question is, what is going on with the numbers? You're seeing a lot of things being reported. And No Agenda was the first one that pointed this out. And it was something that I wasn't aware of when they're like, well, you know, the ICUs are at 80 percent, you know, capacity. That right. doesn't mean that 80 percent of the beds in the hospital are filled. It doesn't mean that 80 percent of ICU capable beds in the hospital are filled. It means your hospital set up right now with 100 ICU beds and maybe they can do a thousand if they have to. But if they're set up for 100 and they have 80 of them filled, well, then they're at 80 percent capacity, even though they might have another 900 beds available for it. Sure. And these numbers that are coming out, there was one I saw the other day, which was like a bunch of hospitals in Florida. And there, there was a uh, Excel sheet of all the hospitals in Florida and how many ICU beds they have and all this other stuff. And a lot of them were showing zero percent capacity. But my question was, well, what do they normally have? Because there's a lot of hospitals in the area here. And for every you know trauma hospital with a huge ICU. There is a suburban hospital that really isn't set up to handle a whole lot of cases. So the, the saying that X amount of hospitals are at zero percent ICU capacity doesn't tell me anything. It's another way of just spreading a story without having any specifics. Yeah, like uh, it's a perfect storm because this sort of virus, it's like a it's novel. So even people who know everything about viruses don't know anything about this virus. Um, B, you have the general public who, you know, even a guy like me, who's, you know, well, I try to stay informed and uh, look at news that's coming out, but for a layman, it's impossible to parse any of this stuff. Um, coupled with the fact that it's all just coming out and changing each day, each week, we have new narrative shifts. We have changing stories. Like you said, Fauci goes this way. Fauci goes that way. CDC goes this way. CDC goes that way. It's just a perfect storm to where you can take any numbers and play an alarmist game and it doesn't have to necessarily mean anything. As long as you can show a line on a graph going like higher than it was, then people are going to freak out and people are going to run around and hold it and and jump up and down and say, no, you're going to kill us all. You know, it just spirals out of control so quickly. 
And the death rate is what should be important because we live through viruses every year. Right. There's no. That is probably the most frustrating part about the whole thing, actually, to me personally, is like people are acting like this has never happened or like Corona is the only thing that now you can get sick from. Like, you know, nobody talks about tuberculosis still out there, common cold, flu, so many different things that you can contract. But Corona is the only thing that you should be worried about. You know, as I showed in the the troll room before the show, and if you're not in the troll room when we're doing these shows live on Friday and now quite often Monday at 11 a.m. Central at noagendastream.com, you're missing out. The local county here that I live in has up to this point reported 333 deaths. So if you're a No Agenda fan, you're ringing the bell and going, there's that magic number. But this is. The, you know, a a county just south of Crook County, where Chicago is. So we're just out in the suburbs, the next county down from Chicago and 333 deaths since the start of this thing, which is now going on, you know, January till now. So like six months, it doesn't really seem all that scary when you're like, okay, 333 people over six months. It's not killing a vast percentage of people when you're looking at the overall death rate it's going to be well under one percent of the people that contract the virus if you believe all of the data which i can't because there are so many questions out there there are different types of tests we're already seeing that they're rolling the different types of tests results into each other which that muddies everything right off the bat And the other thing, which was finally brought up in No Agenda the other day, which was great because I've asked this question a bunch of times, which is if somebody has a positive test for the coronavirus and then they get tested again in a couple of days, which if you're in the hospital, I'm assuming they're testing you daily if you still have the virus. So if you're in the hospital for three weeks and you have the virus for, let's just say you're showing a, a positive test for two of those three weeks. That's like 14 positive tests are that is that going down as one positive or 14 positives in the data? And I almost will guarantee you it's the later of the two. Absolutely. Well, and then there's the situations where frontline workers or other uh, people like that who are required to do testing. If they pop positives, then they have like you're saying, they have to retest until they get negative in order to return to work. And I've seen a few posts like. It's just an anecdotal internet post, so there's like no way to verify. And I've always, I try to ask when I hear people are confirmed or taken tests, but um, I've I've seen a lot of people post that all of those tests that pos- pop positive while they're trying to retest negative return to work are also included in these daily totals. Which doesn't make sense. No, it's it's absurd. It's like, it's laughable, it's laughably absurd. And these are the people that will take a big flaming shit on you if you deny the science you know and like it's like the most poorly crowdsourced science i've ever seen was what has happened throughout the last you know three four five months with this corona thing yeah bad sources bad counting the situation should be getting more clear not less clear it's like it's right now it's as muddy as it's been this whole time which is why i think people are getting really frustrated and We should be just focusing on the death numbers. And that was, I think, when this whole thing started, what 
the logical people were saying, which is, okay, we don't know a whole lot about this. We mm-hmm. believe it's very contagious. So a lot of people are going to get it. We were told off the bat uh, that the more you test, of course, the more positive results you're going to get, because that makes sense. Right. But the thing to watch was the number of deaths. And then right. if you've noticed the narrative, and I've noticed this very clearly on the Drudge Report and other places that will uh, aggregate the news is there have been a rash of stories which are things like the even people that get better even people that get uh, you know end up beating this virus well they have long term lung damage they have long term heart damage they have neurological damage that hemorrhoid that they have is definitely from corona like i've seen all kinds of speculation <laughs> you know what does it end yeah and so that is a very interesting thing when you start looking at this the fear factor i understand why anybody following the news is getting absolutely paranoid if you believe this because it's not just okay i'm gonna get a virus i'm going to be sick but there is a 98 percent chance plus that I'm going to live and be fine. Instead, now you're getting, even if I get this and live, the result might be I'm going to be screwed for life. Oh, yeah. You're going to have like a lifelong chronic condition because you contracted the fucking coronavirus. It's like the amount of fear mongering that's going on is, I mean, it's it's kind of funny being an NA listener for so long because you've s- seen this and had this pointed out and shown to you so often. But I don't know. I mean, it's easy to throw out the now more than ever thing. And it always seems worse, like the time you're in, but really like even objectively, like several times throughout this thing, I've had to step back and look at it and go, no, I'm pretty fucking sure this is like the craziest it's ever been. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's one of those things where the, the concept is, Oh, you're a denier. It's like, well, no, that's not it at all. No, I'm an, I'm an explorer. I'm not denying anything. I haven't denied. I mean, that's the, that's the whole problem is I don't know. Right. So I'm, I'm standing at a spot where I don't know. I'd like to get to a spot where I at least kind of know, or at least I know more. That's always the direction I'm trying to move. Let's know more. Let's figure out more. And that's the whole scientific method in a nutshell. You're, you have all of these variables. You have a very limited uh, ability to measure and observe. But you use those measurements and those observations to ask questions and poke holes and try to figure out what's real and what's not. Oh, is this a movie set? Does it knock down when I kick it? Or is it solid? Is it sturdy? Is it something that I can replicate? That's the whole idea behind the scientific method. But these these modern, whatever the modern left has gotten into in terms of science is just absolutely off the rails. Well, yeah, and it's been going on for years from, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the cover of timer newsweek which was we're going into an ice age and uh and then that didn't work then we were going into global warming and then it was just climate change and now you notice nobody's talking about climate change anymore because the end result is it was never about climate change it was about changing your behavior and then the virus came along and they went holy crap wait a minute we can use we can use easier Uh (laughs) uh-huh It's like it's like what you said with the masks. You can make them out of anything because it's not about, you know, the spread of a viral pathogen. It's about compliance with what you're told to do. And it's very simple. It's just as simple as that, because that's where the problems come in. The problems don't come in if you're breathing the virus out. The problems don't 
come in if you're sneezing and touching things, if you're touching your mask, you're touching your face, that that's not where the problems come in. The problems come in if it's like, sir, sir, did you see the sign? Are you doing what the sign said? That's where you get hassled. The intriguing thing is almost all of these states that have the mandates, and I've seen this from a few places, including a local grocery store, which is if you have a medical condition where you can't wear a mask, then you'll be allowed not to. But now yep. that that's going to be the question of, OK, well, well, I've kind of been playing that angle for a while here locally. And, you know, as far as the populace goes here, it's kind of probably an opinion wise, it's split very evenly. But most of the people who are like anti mask have the fatigue like me where they're like, fuck it, I'll just wear one because I don't want to deal with it. I was actually the last man standing last time I went to the grocery store over the weekend. Uh, and the grocery store, as as everyone remembers, they've always been open, so they never were subje- subject to the shutdowns. Right. They've never had like a, it's, as far as I've been going to the grocery store, at least once or twice a week, like I always do, uh, there's never been like a drop in um, how many people are going. In fact, sometimes there's been spikes, but it's never been dead at the grocery store. There's always been people at the grocery store throughout this whole pandemic. Um, but this weekend was the first weekend where the signs actually said okay it's no longer suggestion the masks are mandatory if you come in here and like i usually do i don't have a mask on me i walked in grabbed a cart and just walk right in like no hesitation just kind of i'm trying to get in before anybody bothers me and i made it to the produce section and some worker jogs up with like a complimentary mask in her hand she's like sir 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 you need to wear this mask and what i had been doing for a while is just pulling out my inhaler saying, yeah, yeah, I'm asthmatic. I have an exemption. Uh, But I've actually found that sometimes there's pushback from that. And there's a couple of people who were like, no, we don't care. Like you have, do you have a paper that says that? Or, you know, like in their mind, they're like, my cousin has asthma. Everybody has asthma. What's your fucking problem? You know? So this time, what I just said was I have a medical exemption. And she was like, what? And I said, I have a medical condition and I can't wear a mask. You know, my doctors told me can't wear a mask. And Coming from that angle, I think, is a little more helpful because, A, they look at you. When, when you tell them that, they look at you and they try to figure out what the hell you might have. <laughs> right. And they know that it's all extremely rude to pry into that and also illegal to pry into that. So they can't really ask you, oh, yeah, Buster, what do you ha- what's your condition? You know, I don't see you with a, uh, an oxygen tank or any cane or, you know, like they don't. But it's nice because it kind of turns the table on the, on the social uh, shaming where it's like, Oh, you're going to assume that I don't have a medical condition. Oh, you're going to assume that, you know what my medical condition is. You're going to try and guess what it is. So it really disarms them mentally. And it also robs them of that sense of authority that they have when they approach you. Like it just instantly evaporates. So she kind of just like mumbled. I didn't even hear her and like walked away looking at her feet and you know, I got my $90 worth of groceries and I got my ass out of there. But uh, without any further incident, no, no, the checkers didn't say anything to me. None of the other workers there said anything to me. I didn't even really get dirty looks, which sometimes I will get just not wearing a mask. But like, I try to stay away from people. I don't really like go up, you know, like I try not to push my cart in a narrow space where like I'm going to rub shoulders with people. I just try to stay away because I still don't really want to poke the bear that much. I just want to be left alone. I just want to. I just want to be able to walk through, not wear a mask, live my life, be left alone. And so that's kind of the 
courtesy I try to give to other people too is like leave them alone too. If they want to wear a mask, that's fine. I don't like look at people with masks on and automatically think, oh, you're a stupid asshole. I just think, oh, you know, they're trying to do what they think they need to do for the situation they're in. You know, like I don't claim to have any of the magical answers. I just like to be able to pick my own path too. you know. Well, yeah, well, civility's dead. I mean, Gene Witch in the troll room's right. I don't think it's illegal to pry into somebody's medical conditions, but people are very afraid to do so just because it's part of this new, you know, woke society, which instead of it, you know, you don't talk about religion or politics, you know, now I think they're talking about religion and politics and telling you you're stupid if you believe in what they don't. But, you know, now the medical stuff has turned into the new religion. Like, oh, wait, oh, he said this. Okay, we don't want to. We don't want to dare. This is kind of like you, you said you identify as a he. Oh, gee, we don't want to. We don't want to argue with you because right. that would be that would be wrong. But this is the big problem is that we do have seemingly two different sides on every story. And it's interesting when you look at the Black Lives Matter thing, because it is the greatest named organization in the world, because the statement itself black lives matter obviously true right but the organization black lives matter which is self-expressed marxism a lot of people should have a problem with that but then to go and actually say negative things about something called black lives matter is uh is troublesome right well they yeah they loaded against you It's, it's a very clever design i think it really is because you see things like somebody goes out and let's just say you own a business and they paint Black Lives Matter on your store. Well, they're just protesting. Sure. But now when they paint Black Lives Matter on the streets in New York and other people come by and throw black paint to cover that, well, that's a hate crime. And I'm very, very intrigued on how being pro something is fine and then being against you know, the Marxism, well, that that's a hate crime. But now if somebody goes and vandalizes your property, they're just protesting. You go to, I mean, I thought there was something, I mean, this may have been complete and utter bull crap, but, you know, cleaning off the Black Lives Matter graffiti is going to be a hate crime. Yeah, it's, it's wild how the pushback is going on. There's even a, I can't remember the city, but a, a police department, I want to say a California police department that was compelled to put a Black Lives Matter poster up. Um, and the issue they ended up like being the big compromise on it was that they put black lives matter on the poster, but they didn't capitalize the L and M in lives matter. Uh, so that it wasn't like a explicit endorsement of the organization, which everybody has a, um, and I won't, obviously I won't say everybody, but a lot of people have a problem with the organization and that's sort of where you're forced to stand. If you're going to take a stand against the black lives matter you have to be like well the organization black lives matter the organization black lives matter and you'll hear it on a variety of different talk shows and podcasts and this and that like people are you know very very careful to point out no it's this nonprofit that we're talking about specifically and uh, the political aspect of it well and it's interesting to see what the media is covering because there was an interview on fox that had uh, Herschel Walker, football great, and Mark Cuban, you know, douchebag owner of the Mavericks. But of course, that'll show my bias right there, which I was a big fan of Mark Cuban until he starts saying some really stupid stuff lately. And the concept was Herschel Walker, 
who, you know, actually a black guy was trying to get the point across that you do you even know Mark Cuban as, you know, millionaire, billionaire, white owner of the Dallas Mavericks? You know, are you even aware of what Black Lives Matter is? And the host, and I, I'm blanking on her name, but it was one of the black hosts on Fox was just throwing it back to Mark Cuban and ignoring this whole question. And I'm like, are you serious? Because this is the most important thing about this concept is why people are against Black Lives Matter. And it's not because they're racist. It's because they're not Marxist. That's a a very simple thing. And that is something that if you really cared about black lives, you would want that to get out there because there's plenty of ways to show your support for the black population than to go to a Marxist organization. And when you won't let a black guy speak, it's very ironic to me that. Right. Uh, well, and that's why it really breaks down when you try to pigeonhole it by race or even by political stripe, you know, you can talk about groups and demographics and averages, but then when you break it down to individuals, we don't belong to that group. We don't really in, in the sense that, you know, we line up with every issue that the group identifies as, you know, we're all individual people. And so that really gets lost in translation, especially in race. And I think like the opposite side of the same coin is like the, the troll meme. It's okay to be white. Um, was just as effective at the other side on the other side over the last two or three years. Um, just because of that same idea that it's, it's not a res- a statement that can be refuted because the minute you refute it, you um you commit racism. Basically it's like right. a, it's like a trap that's loaded for you. Um, but you know, it, the, the both sides have been using it and it's just not very helpful in the end because uh, the, they're very poor group identifiers. Well, and the interesting thing Mark Cuban said was, well, you know, we're we're just focusing on this because the Herschel Walker dared to say something like, you know, all lives matter or everyone's life matters. And Mark Cuban's like, well, you know, we're focusing on the people, you know, where the biggest problems are, of course, you know, with anything where the biggest problems are, we're going to focus on that. So we're focusing on black lives matter. But of course, all lives matter. But again, totally missing the point or intentionally ignoring the point that the organization Black Lives Matter is an issue when you're talking about the NBA wanting to, and I don't know what level any of this stuff is at because it's all in flux, but there's been talk that the NBA wanted to paint Black Lives Matter on every court. And it's like, again, you do realize this is a Marxist organization who, if you go read their website, wants the takedown of the capitalist system and NBA, (laughs) I hate to tell you, you only survive because of the capitalist system. So it's a very weird um, bedfellows for the NBA to be supporting a Marxist group who wants the end of capitalism, because without capitalism, there is no NBA. But that just to me, again, shows the ignorance that all these people are seeing is the concept Black Lives Matter and not understanding that the group Black Lives Matter is it's a totally different animal. Yeah, that's definitely true. Well, there's a lot of uh cracks showing up you you talk about the people who are pointing out the deep connections with marxism um but there's also you know just plenty of black activists who are speaking out against it and i think like uh between charles barkley's statement recently when you know he was disappointed in a lot of people who are kind of clinging to uh 
hatred of the white race as a response to, you know, the, pro- the problems that they perceive um, as sort of fighting fire with fire that's bad. And then you also have like the lady in New York who's taking advantage of their bail reform to paint over the Black Lives Matter right. mural in the street, get arrested, get released immediately, and then go right back and do it again. So a lot of criminals in New York are doing that with strong arm robberies and right. uh, assaults, and she's just doing it with a, a civil disobedience type uh, uh, display. So those cracks are showing up in the narrative, and that's really the spots where you can get people one or two at a time. You know, it's not like... Uh, um, the cracks in the narrative are never going to be like a, f- a floodgate really, unless like some, something bigger happens, but uh, we don't, you know, the, the narrative is controlled by the, the mainstream. And so you just get pounded with that pounded with that. And that's what can shift quickly because they have all of the outlets. They can put the talking points out and in one day it changes what everybody's saying changes. Well, yeah, um, and we've, We've we've seen that very clearly on No Agenda Two, which is one of the first places I remember hearing this concept when they have these super clips using some keywords, and you know somebody yeah. somewhere is starting these these uh, you know there's a mailing list somewhere, there's a daily conference call that says, oh well today we're going to be talking about this, and that's the word you hear on everybody's lips when they yep. go on all the news shows. Oh, the one where. Uh you can get that super cut of all of the local broadcasters saying like um, disinformation is dangerous to our democracy. And like, you know, there's like 80 people saying it all in a row in a row. Uh, that that was one of the first things I really got my dad like hooked into from no agenda stuff is just like, cause he, he always is like, you know, I've, I've been shitting on the news constantly of like, no, you don't want to watch the news. No, don't just like watch the news. He's like, well, you know, I don't, really don't like the network, but I'll watch the local news. And so then I'll like share, I'll share that with him. Like, Oh, this local news. And it's beautiful. Cause there's so many in that cut that like, there's one in the Des Moines station where his parents live. And then there's like one sort of locally here, I think uh, maybe like a Springfield or something, but um, there was enough local in there to kind of really blow his mind in the like, Oh, these guys are all saying the same thing too. Even though it's a local news cast it's like perceived as like oh i'm the only one getting this message you know right well that's what you think in that these people that are putting these uh, newscasts together are independent when the reality is that's the furthest thing from the truth a lot of time on the newscasts are bought and paid for they're just a franchise and i mean you would think that that would be obvious with like they still all have either the fox or the abc or the nbc loco you know like there's only three or four uh stations that you can have under those under those little umbrellas but at the same time it's like well that's that's larry moore and he never lies to me you know right and that's when you start waking up and going it doesn't matter it's not all cbs not all abc it's across the board right everybody's saying the same thing and you brought up charles barkley i love charles because he's a guy that seems to speak the truth even if he knows it's going to piss people off and that's what i would like to see more of these leaders doing in the black community including uh, james harden which is you know the nba is one of the best scorers in the nba showed up to practice the other day wearing a thin blue line mask which is the police you know the american flag with the one blue stripe which is normally known as a flag that pays respect and homage to the police officers and rather than owning that he ended up just saying, well, it wasn't a political statement. I just thought it looked cool. And it's like, look, dude, 
you had the perfect chance to say, look, and this is exactly what Michael Jordan did when Black Lives Matter came up um, four years ago. He made a donation of a million bucks to the NAACP defense fund, and he made a million dollar donation to a police charity. And he said, over my career, he's like, I understand everybody has different experiences. He's put out a letter to the world and he said, everybody has different experiences, but myself and my family have met tons of police officers who we entrusted with our safety, who were great to us. And this concept that all the police are bad is crap, you know, paraphrasing here. But sure. this is what I would have liked to hear from James Harden, which is, you know, this concept of defund the police. It's like all of these people, you know, at one point or another that are in the public eye, whether they're, you know, play in the NBA or whether they're these Hollywood types, you know, they've all paid personal security or had personal security to protect them. And you're going to go defund the police. That's going to be something you're not going to speak out against. I don't get it because you could bring some sanity to the topic. James Harden, a guy, obviously people in the black community look up to you wore the face mask. I mean, are we to believe that it was just a face mask that fit and he didn't know what it meant. And maybe that's true. And if it is, it's really sad that he pulled that face mask out the other day, not knowing what it is, or maybe somebody (laughs) gave it to him. I don't know. But this was the perfect time to make a statement that just said, look, You know, even if it's I support Black Lives Matter, but the police aren't the enemy. Yeah. And I think like that that unity is so needed right now, but it's also so impossible to get to in the Trump era. And, you know, for for better or worse, it may even be a a byproduct of the Trump style where nowadays any opportunity where we could have unity, it's so rare for people to take that. Because at the same time, they think they they can get a dunk on the other side. They can go and dunk on, you know, the conservatives. They can go dunk on the libs, uh, own the libs. It's like, that's always the the route that people want to take. And the the president really does set culturally um, kind of the boundaries and what's acceptable. Uh, we saw that, like, probably most infamously with the the Bill Clinton scandal and, like, how oral sex became not sex um, well what does is mean can you define that for me what is is what are you really that, uh, that billy was a deep thinker <laughs> is that what it was um, yes but there is something to be said for words in their ever changing definitions which is really what got me i mean i was going to take the day off today but i guess start getting a little bit annoyed reading the news which i know if you don't want to mm-hmm. get annoyed Don't read the news. Best to avoid it. It would be pretty simple. But there were a couple of different stories. The first one uh, hit yesterday, the day before yesterday, which I I still don't understand. I didn't hear the tape, so I don't know if he actually said it or not. And I think it's irrelevant. But Roger Stone, for some reason, now that he's gotten his pardon, you know, he doesn't have to worry about anything. One, I don't understand why you would go on any talk shows whatsoever. I don't know why you would get on the radio, why you would talk to anybody. And if you're going to do that, I don't know why you would do it with somebody that, you know, doesn't like you or is going to argue with you. I don't know why Uh, it just it wouldn't be. It doesn't make sense that this is the first thing you want to do. But allegedly, and I don't know if anybody heard this, you can confirm or not because I didn't hear the audio. But allegedly, 
you know, under his breath or something. It was a black host that he was talking to and under his breath said something like, well, yeah, I'm just not going to argue with this Negro. And the news coverage of that alone Mm. was very triggering to me in the sense. The first thing I saw, and I think this was from NBC. And if that's wrong, you can fact check me, troll room. But I think it was NBC that was. Roger Stone uses racial slur while talking to, you know, talk show host. And I'm like, wait a minute, Negroes, a racial slur now. And then this was being talked about in the no agenda troll room. People like, well, you better tell the United Negro College Fund. You better Mm -hmm. tell the Negro Leagues, you know, Hall of Fame, um, Mm -hmm. which is a great place. You said that's right by you down there. Yeah, yeah. uh, That's right there at 18th and Vine, the Negro Leagues baseball museums. But it's a big deal here. I mean, I that's that's my smile.amazon.com. That is the charity. Everything goes to when I buy something on, on Amazon is the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame because I'm boycotting the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame because Minnie Minoso isn't in the Hall of Fame. I think they're full of crap. A tragedy. It is. I always thought that the the way they did Pete Rose was kind of mean too. I understand rules are rules, but uh, the amount of time and the amount of uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, you got other guys in the in the Hall of Fame that you can point at to and say, well, what about this guy rules or rules? You know, well, Pete Rose was obviously using his white privilege to to gamble on baseball. But what Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame for happened long before he became a manager. Yeah. And smashing the hits records, man. I mean, you know, and this hasn't happened yet. And maybe we're a little we'll be ahead of the game on this one because I'm kind of surprised with all of these statues. And monuments being torn down of Confederate, you know, soldiers and generals and all this other stuff, the Confederate flag. Well, baseball, their history is one filled with a lot of racist assholes. And there a lot of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Yep. So this is this is inconvenient for yeah. a place that's filled with plaques and statues and and a lot of that is is highlighted too, not only at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum here in town, but at the Royals Hall of Fame Museum they have at the Royals Stadium. You know that there's no shying away from the way things used to be in baseball, especially in the early days. I mean, you got to imagine it's the beginning of the 1900s uh, when a lot of the early baseball went down, and so there was still lots of legacy of racism. And I think it's important to keep in the history of you know you don't want to repeat this. You are we've already gone through it and see how it didn't work and see how it was unfair and to just erase that from history and like not talk about it that's how you end up falling back into the trap of that same thing happening yeah that that is absolutely true and you know i know nobody likes the argument of well you know it was a different time it's like well but it was true i mean people react to the society around them. They react to what their friends, how they speak, how the media speaks, and to hold whole, you know, generations of people responsible for things, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. And we should be pointing out more of the good things that came from all of this. I mean, there are some great stories of the Negro Leagues where they were doing barnstorming and would play against, you know, the white team to just wipe them out. I mean, yep. the, the Harlem Globetrotters, if you want to take that same thing, you know, concept of basketball, were uh, an amazing bunch of players who couldn't get the jobs in the NBA because, you know, they were black. And they just showed that they were 20 times better than than yep. anybody else playing. Well, and, and 
the whole sporting uh, phenomenon here in, in our country was the, it was really the number one path forward for integration itself. I mean, when Jackie Robinson entered baseball and then just starting wh- whipping everybody's ass on an even playing field, that's really where you get to objectively demonstrate that the superiority myth is a joke, you know, like individuals are either really good or not so good, but the whole racial inferiority superiority thing melts away when you're actually put into a contest on an even playing field, a literal playing field. And I mean, for, if it weren't for sports, I think that racial integration would have taken a lot longer in this country. Oh, I agree. And I think that's a big reason. I mean, I was born in 1970, but I remember Growing up, going to the first White Sox games when I was about seven years old and growing up with players that I idolized that were black. And it's like I never thought twice about it. It's like it didn't really even enter into the equation. It's like you weren't like, oh, gee, I'd like to, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't be a fan of Harold Baines because he's black. I should probably like the white guy. It's like you're absolutely right that this was a place that could encourage again instead of divisiveness where everybody could come together under Mm -hmm. a common goal and some of the stories of the negro leaguers are just amazing satchel page i don't know if a better pitcher a more talented pitcher has ever walked the face of the earth and it's a you know it's a shame that people at the time maybe didn't get to see them because the major leagues were not integrated but there are a lot of people that did. I mean, those Negro League teams, if, if you had to go back, I would def- more than give the whatever team won the World Series in Major League Baseball. I think they would more than give them a run for their money. I mean, Satchel Paige sure. ended up pitching in the Major Leagues when he was, what, almost 60 years old? Yeah, it's, it's wild uh, what the Negro Leagues cultivated and what the, you know, the players that they developed. It's and and it might've been a perfect storm situation too, where they had a lot to prove and um, you know, they wanted to show the world, but it it was a great way. And I think that culturally culturally too, it was important for the kids growing up, you know, cause maybe when the uh, racial integration first began, you know, a lot of the adults who were set in the old ways were just very, uh, I don't know. They had to get the cages were certainly rattled right. by uh, Robinson injuring baseball. But the kids who didn't have decades of, of um, programming to hate a race and to disallow a race to, to come in uh, and participate in the same activities, they don't have all that prejudice. So they're just looking at the field and just going like, wow, this guy's just good at baseball, you know, and a lot of a lot of white kids grew up with Jackie Robinson as their hero, which was the first domino falling into that cultural acceptance. Yeah, and he they wanted to get him into the political stuff, and he wasn't having anything. He, I mean, yeah. I did a, a Random Thoughts episode which talked about this because he was uh, um, friends with the guy that they were trying to get on all sorts of nefarious things, and they thought they would get you know Jackie Robinson to turn on him, and and he didn't because he wasn't going to be he wasn't going to be suckered into it. So he was a guy that everybody could look up to there's no doubt he took a bunch of abuse from both fans and teammates when he first started but you're absolutely right with the kids growing up watching baseball at the time i mean you just like the guy that's winning you know the guy that's taking your team and winning and uh, 
I mean, I think it was a single factor cultural change, just that one thing, uh, just Jackie being in, in baseball. And then of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of black players followed in his footsteps, but that, that breaking of that racial barrier for the younger generations, it was just like night and day and instant, like, Oh, this is not just okay now. Like this is fantastic now. And, And like you're saying too, I have a lot of respect for the people who can, uh, kind of stay out of the political fray who because nine times out of 10 when you've got an athlete or a celebrity that's making those political statements it's 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 more out of exploitation than out of they have an actual uh dog in the fight or like a intellectually honest take on things uh a vast majority of those people are just parroting what they've been asked to say for you know uh, favors for hookers and blow or a contract or whatever uh, and it's really, that's why it's so dishonest. And like, uh, that's why I respect a guy like, like you're saying, Jackie Robinson or like Gene Simmons, who, you know, Gene Simmons has famously said recently, like, I think that celebrities should stick to what they do best, which is singing, dancing and juggling balls, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, he's a, he's a pretty outspoken guy to be saying that. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he shoots his mouth off whenever he feels it's necessary, but, um, at the same time, like I, I also appreciate the sentiment, you know? Oh yeah. There's no doubt about it, but I, I do cringe when you see things like major league baseball right now is a very small percentage African-American. There's a lot of black guys from like the Dominican and stuff like that, but African-Americans very low and you hear stuff like, oh, well, you know, we, we need to do better to, you know, you know, get more African-American kids to play baseball. And then I ask the question, because you go over to the NBA where it's like 85 percent black and go, well, where's the uh, we need more white kids in the NBA? I don't understand the right. uh, the concept. If you're not going to go both ways, then what's the point? I mean, the even the idea that a smaller subset of a population should reflect the racial demographics of the larger aggregate is just so silly. It's like, uh, um, I don't know, just take like fans of a certain artist like uh you know or all fans like all dave Chappelle fans should they like racially reflect the demographics of the united states as a whole like right um, so he should have only 13 percent black fans i guess yeah i mean uh the the even wanting that is so absurd like why would you even want that i don't i don't understand it for sure it it just it just creates inequality by immediately having to enforce anything like that or like having a quota based on skin color you know they want to do i don't know if you read this recently they want to do away with the blind auditions for orchestras because too many white people are winning the blind auditions for orchestras <laughs> oh so again we don't want like, things to be based upon merit we have to take the, skin color in and that's less racist somehow i don't insane. get it like a blind audition where you can you can objectively remove race being a factor in any way <laughs> right and you uh, you say well too many white people are winning so maybe we should do this a different way like uh, i'm sorry it doesn't make sense it's like merit it's, has to play a part i mean this is why i think people like those that are running black lives matter want nothing to do with the reverend martin luther king jr they don't because he was very clear. He was a guy that was a uniter. He was willing to die for what he believed. And he was very clear. Judge people by the content of their character, not on the color of their skin. And that is not where these people are today. 
it is color of the skin is the first and foremost thing. And gimme, 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 treat me differently rather than we should all be treated equally. And they're very different things. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. It's different. And where these things, I mean, we got off on a long tangent there with baseball because I enjoy baseball and I do need to get down sure. to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But Roger Stone using the word Negro, I mean, he's what, 70, 80 years old. That is a word that was common when he was growing up. That is a sure. word that's still used. Again, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, the Negro League College Fund. And while it's not necessarily used in polite company today, I don't believe that there's any reason. And again, this just shows the media and their ignorance to call that a slur. So, I mean, I, does, then if that is a slur, call the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and tell them their name is a slur and call the Negro League College Fund, tell them their name is a slur and see what kind of an answer you get from them. Because, yeah, I, I mean, uh, it, there's so many things I, I'm like, I'm with you. I would really like to see the original uh, audio or the tape. Um, uh, if there's video, that'd be great, too, because I mean, I don't know. That seems like an easy thing to sweeten, you know? Yes. Um, But it just seems it just seems like how could he be that stupid? I mean, I know you're saying, like, how could he be that stupid to even go on TV? But right. the, Roger Stone is like king of wagging the dick in their face. so. <laughs> Of course, he's going to go on TV, but uh, wanted to take a victory lap and it didn't quite work know. out. Is he just getting that old to where he like thought it was 1972 or some shit, you know, and he's like back in the in the heyday? Like, I don't I think that's seems, possible with some people that age. I think so. I mean, I've seen, you know, we've seen it with Biden do it a number of times. And you know, Roger Stone's certainly an old dude. And like that was you, you just got to wonder. I mean, there's so many flukes and the human brain is so wild. and and stone was making the rounds he was at his peak you know in the nixon administration the nixon era so very different times and you can still see like i mean if you watch old thomas Sowell interviews and uh they constantly talk about the negro and the american negro and uh what the negro wants what's good for the negro like it's just in academia it was just a uh it was that it was a demographic it wasn't like a slur and a and you're right in that I don't ever remember it being considered a slur. It's kind of like considered in poor taste today. Um, yes, but it's very inconvenient to call it a slur when all of these other organizations are out there. Right. And that's where, again, the media, it's like this. Nobody can take anything you're saying seriously because it, just, uh, it depends on the context and who's saying it. And, and uh, that's what they're going to decide if it was right or wrong, you know? Right. Well, that's the problem because white guys saying it. So he obviously isn't allowed to say Negro. We know he's not allowed to say the other N word. There's a whole other list of words that people aren't allowed to say anymore. And the language is changing. And um, to try Husker in the troll room. Uh, yes. Buck O'Neill is one of the founders of the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame. Not kin of mine. I wish he was the guy. If you've ever watched, mm -hmm. go to YouTube and look up videos of Buck O'Neill. And he is a it was he passed away a couple of years ago he was a fantastic yeah. storyteller and i don't think i ever have seen a video of him where he didn't have a huge smile on his face and appear to be having the time of his life yeah buck is one of our hometown heroes for sure and even at the royals game still they have like the buck o'neill legacy seat that's given away to someone deserving every game so that like they're featured and they get to go to a game for free but a uh, huge part of the monarchs organization and a definite huge role in not only starting the negro leagues baseball museum but uh you know keeping it going 
So Darren, if you're ever in Kansas city, definitely hit us up because the, the Negro leagues baseball museum is attached to the jazz museum. And so you can kind of do them both at once and just such a fantastic chunk of Casey history. Uh, if you added barbecue in there, <laughs> yes. you have like the Kansas city trifecta of history, jazz, the Negro leagues, baseball and barbecue is kind of like, that's, that's our trifecta. And but yeah, by law, you have to add the barbecue in. I don't think there's any question right. about that. And no, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to retain my business license here on the wall. If uh, <laughs> I hadn't mentioned um, Buck O'Neill, a great ambassador for baseball. And I don't believe he's in the actual hall of fame either. I think there's a statue or something of him there. He's got, something mentioned, but I don't think he was ever inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Minnie Minoso to Chicago, I think, is kind of what Buck O'Neill was to Kansas City, which is, you know, that was our guy. Up until gotcha. the day that he passed away, he was still working with the Chicago White Sox and just a overall sweet guy who would sign autographs at the ballpark anytime you saw him. And mm-hmm. He was up there a lot. My parents used to have seats in the in the club level, you know, the snooty little club level that only had five rows of seats. So it was a, uh, you know, a much more exclusive place. I mean, the tickets were the same price as the tickets down right behind the dugout, but it was a, a much smaller section, much less people around because it was only five rows. And it seemed like about once a month or so. Minnie would be up there and they would announce when he was going to be up there signing autographs and other guys, of course, would sign autographs. And, you know, Minnie had a beautiful signature, loved to tell stories. Another guy who I don't think we ever saw having a bad day and we knew he was going to be out there. And this was right about the time I was, uh, you know, doing some things with a uh, one of these filters for Photoshop that was, you know, taking photographs. And, you know, making them look like oil paintings and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. And I took an old black and white photo of Minnie from the uh, the New York uh, Cubans, I think was the name of the team. And it was an old black and white photo of him. And I had taken that photo and colorized it and printed it up into poster size. And I thought it looked pretty good. And it's like, oh, let's, you know, the next time Minnie's going to be up there, let's, uh, you know, let's get. My parents can take it. They'll get it autographed. And I printed up an extra copy for him. And there was another uh, photo similar to that that I did and printed up the poster for him. And my parents took it, got mine autographed. And he liked them so much. He gave them his business card with his cell phone number on. He's like, you have your son call me. And that's awesome. I called him and he was just the most gracious guy. He really only wanted to tell me how nice my parents were. And, you know, how cool he thought the posters were. And he thought, you know, at the time, maybe they could do something with, you know, getting more printed up to, you know, to sell them through his website. But it wasn't long after that, that he ended up passing away, sadly, but a true Chicago legend and, you know, a guy that should be in the regular Hall of Fame, which is why people, you know, the Hall of Fame, it's so great. It's like, no, which is that was about the time that I, I started over on Amazon where it's like, oh, you need a place to, you know, if you're on Amazon. For anybody that doesn't know, if you shop at Amazon and you're not using their smile program, you're just you're just giving extra money to Amazon because it doesn't cost you anything. They give yeah. a percentage of anything you buy to the charity of your choice. And that's when I decided to start sending the that proceeds over to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum because, uh, you know, the guys there, they're, you know, 
I think they're doing a better job than the guys in Cooperstown, at least till this point. I keep hoping something will change in Cooperstown, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely steeped in old tradition there. Yes, it is. And speaking of the old traditions, again, this is where the words are changing meanings. And the second story, besides the Roger Stone uttering the word Negro, was Trader Joe's, of course, which is a, uh, you know, a company that you guess is pretty woke already. Now taking flack, and I had no idea because we don't shop at Trader Joe's. We're we're more the we're the, we're the lower you know lower key of the the two brothers because the one went to Trader Joe's and the other was the Aldi guy because I think right. that, you know, so we're the Aldi shoppers. Don't pay any attention to Trader Joe's, but I guess at Trader Joe's when they have their Mexican entrees, you know that whole line. I guess it's Trader Wands and the the Chinese food and that is, you know, Trader Ming. And there's a couple other similar down the lines. And of course, that's all being changed now because this is all oh, totally Jesus. racist. Uh huh. And I'm asking, okay, to wait. So you're, I just want to try to follow this. Let's just start with Trader Wands. If that is racist to sell Mexican food as Trader Wands, then selling any Americanized food as Trader Joe's or having a place called Trader Joe's must also be racist, right? I mean, I don't know why they went didn't go with Trader Jose, I suppose, but I mean, Juan is John, you know, in Spanish. So like it's just a name. So you can't even have a name. Right. Like, the name is racist, I guess. Uh it's it's very strange what they're doing with cancel culture recently, because like things like uh Aunt Jemima, for instance. I mean, they're on the one hand, there's been push in the past for more representation of people of color in I don't know, everywhere, cartoon, media, uh, radio, right. just Comic about books. everywhere you look. But then they're going to eliminate black characters on this. On the other hand, it's just so silly. I, I know that the um, uh, the family of the the yeah. you know, the lady that the you know, the character was based on, they're like really upset about the whole thing. They're like, look, this is our family's legacy here. That's just being like erased because like what they claim it's racist, you know, but it's like. Well, well, right. And we, we talked like about our that. Our ancestor made a fortune doing this. Like this was her business, you know? Like, yes. And we talked about that on Grumpy Old Benz because it was, uh, that's immediately what hit me was we're asking, well, we aren't, but people are asking today still for reparations to slavery. And there was a state that just passed something or a city and it's like, you're nuts. But <laughs> we're having people today still asking for reparations for slavery. And the woman that played Aunt Jemima was actually a slave, was freed, and went on to work and make her own money and make her own legacy. So immediately, she was actually a slave for part of her life. When she was released from slavery, got a gig, made a lot of money, became famous. But we're to believe that people can't get a gig, make money, and get famous today, hundreds of years you know, later, a hundred plus years later. I don't quite understand and the the barack obama story is the one as i said to bemrose on an episode or two ago it's like this used to be the litmus test when i was growing up and before then but you know growing up again through the 70s and 80s was well we're not going to be a fully country uh free of racism until we have a black president and the barack obama story is an amazing one because he was a guy that wasn't born into wealth he was a guy who was born into a pretty middle class family 
who was very intelligent, is very intelligent, got his college paid for through scholarships to some of the best colleges in the world and went on to become president. So where is the ceiling here for achievement? I don't get it anymore because that was the litmus test. That was kind of the last, <laughs> that hardest glass ceiling, if you want to borrow a phrase. But, uh, you know, even if you go back in time, in this country, the first self-made female millionaire in this country was a black woman, it was African-American woman. Uh, C.J. Walker was the first one. And she, was, she died in 1919. So it's like it, the, these, these barriers that you can point to in aggregates and in demographics and in averages don't really bear out in the true history of the country. And, and to pretend like uh, we have disallowed African-Americans or disallowed women to achieve things, you know, can be easily refuted if you just look at history. I mean, um, it's all over the place. Yeah. The facts again, are inconvenient for those just joining us this is grumpy old benz and that isn't the normal grump on the other side saying insane things that is sir spencer instead of sir bemrose and uh, you know we're talking about all things going on in the world today and now trader wands must go trader mings must go dios mio man <laughs> the the ceilings i don't know when you hear the word in as we said these are the things that start popping up out of nowhere and systemic racism even in that interview Mark Cuban was using that over and over again. Well, we have to look at systemic racism and be like, well, where does this exist? Because I don't understand that. Uh, I mean, we're looking at the NBA, Michael Jordan. I mean, he may not be the sole owner, but he owns a team. So even when you're going up to that level of team ownership and I know owner, oh, my God, how could you say you own <laughs> anything? Because those players, they, they have an owner. It's like, well, no, but he owns the team, not the players. <laughs> They're making millions of dollars. I mean, come on. The fact that. We can't say master bedroom anymore because that has a connotation. This constantly changing, or at least this trying to change what words mean is very troublesome. It really is the burning books of the 2020s. It is. And it's, it's kind of wild. The solutions that they, they pick uh, are just so unhelpful to the aggregate. You know, if you, if you really care about the social justice aspect of it or like, people making it to certain, uh, I don't know, you want a certain percentage of this demo out of poverty, or you want a certain percentage of this demo landing jobs in this category. How is changing the language going to, it's, it's just an empty, meaningless gesture. And I think that a lot of people are seeing that, um, as these things roll out, you know, as they attack the the pancake box for right. the racism, as they remove the Lando Lakes Indian. Right. But they left you know, the land. So that was good. Right. They keep the land. They remove the Native American. So like it <laughs> seems like in line, like what a PR disaster. Like uh, and they just take the bait over and over and over again. It's, it's incredible to me. Well, it is. And I don't mean the Aunt Jemima thing was interesting because the original character went back to the slave times. It went back to kind of the vaudeville where it was the mammy type character and which again is a very subservient woman. But what it morphed into was just an older black lady. So just a black lady kicking your pancakes. Who's your aunt? I mean, you 
can go back in the history, obviously, and look at the mammy uh, stereotype that it did start as. But I mean, that's not even been in my lifetime, you know? Right. I think it was like the 60s or 70s where it was just a regular everyday woman. It had already been that, you know? And isn't that already fixed? Like, isn't isn't the stereotype already repaired? But you, it's like by canceling Aunt Jemima, by not even putting her on the bottle, that does not go back to the early 1900s and erase what she was back then. There's the history will always exist. That always happened. Once it happened, it happened. So uh, it's just disingenuous, I think, to, um, and really actually goes the other way. You know, it's, it seems like more, it seems more racist to me to cancel her entirely. Yes. Than what was already done by, uh, you know, bringing the image into a modernized, uh, regular lady. And why they want to forget the history. And that's one thing that always stuck with me from Michelle Obama when Barack Obama won his first term was, saying you're going to have to rewrite your history and it's like wait was mm-hmm. that where you, are you misspeaking or are you really now the, the longer we get away from that the more i think that was exactly what she meant which sure. was we need to rewrite the history because they they seem to think that you can somehow fight the racism battle in the past which i'm i mean call me a starry-eyed optimist but i'm very much more concerned with building a good future than to like <laughs> repair, change, rearrange the past. It's just, uh, cause one is looking toward the future and building something and actually creating. And the other is a, a destructive <laughs> mechanism. You know, you're, you're manipulating, you're lying and you're destroying, uh, the lessons that our ancestors gave us. I mean, part of the reason that they went through all of this terrible bullshit is so that we didn't have to that's the benefit of living in the future um and there's always going to be a future that we're building so um you know to to not to not learn from those lessons and you know keep passing them on and keeping them in mind it's a huge dishonor i think to to the past and to our ancestors and the people who forged it and it is a big double standard because you want to keep certain things and you want to get rid of others like everything going on. You know, now you yeah. can, you know, paint black lives matter. But if somebody paints, you know, all lives matter, well, then they're racist and that's a hate crime. And it, it, it that doesn't make any sense to me either. All of this changing the you know wording of things because you, you find it inconvenient. It's like that doesn't increase the dialogue that doesn't come to a solution if you're just if you can wave a magic wand and get rid of certain words it doesn't make any sense it's not making anything better it's not making anything different it was intriguing to me with the washington redskins and the name change i mean that was a very interesting thing to watch because before they even announced they were going to change the name they had which i would guess would be the biggest social justice warrior gun to their head when Amazon came out and said, we are pulling all Washington Redskins stuff from our website. So you can't go buy a Redskins jersey, T-shirt, whatever it is, because that's racist. Now, that is troublesome. Was that after the announcement that they were definitely going to do the name change? No, before. Okay. So it's like I was I was curious about that on the timeline because it's like 
Uh, that was like probably another big stick that pushed him in this direction. I don't know. I, the, the Redskins thing for me, obviously I don't have a dog in the fight, uh, on the racial side or on the team side. Um, but we do have sort of a similar thing that people, it's not as often brought up, but we have a similar thing with the chiefs where people are like, well, you know, there's another one. There's another one. It's like on the target list, but it's really low on the target list. The main reason it's low on the target list is because the Chiefs were actually named after a former mayor of Kansas City, Atro Bartle, whose nickname was the Chief, and he had uh, he was famously well um, had good relationships with the tribal leaders and often turned to them for advice on how to lead. Um, and he was also a huge leader in the Scouts, which I grew up in the Scouts, and I'm an Eagle Scout. So he started a Boy Scout camp here in the state that all of the Casey area Scouts go to. Um, Atro Bartle Scout Reservation. So his legacy as Chief Bartle is really well known in the area. And so uh, I think it would be really hard to topple the the name of the Chiefs. But the Redskins almost seems like on the totally opposite side of the scale where like if there's any any team name in the big four um, that would be singled out and targeted, I'm just surprised it has actually taken this long really to be uh, to be honest about it, well, I don't really support necessarily. I don't think like a change is necessary. I just think like looking at the societal barometers, it, that's what surprised me that it's taken this long. Like I figured this would have rolled through in the nineties or maybe even before. Well, there were rumblings, but it, it had never been this bad. Again, this, the George Floyd thing was a domino that went down and is going to have effects for a long time. And because it is sure. in Washington, DC, obviously, it had to be done where I think they would have a much tougher time in the heartland. Yeah. You know, the places like Chicago, I'm not so sure, which is why I was happy immediately that the Chicago Blackhawks came out with. We are not changing our name. So the Chicago big Blackhawks. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, well, one, the interesting thing was even though there was a Blackhawk tribe, it was because of the guy named Blackhawk. And they're like, this is, you know, it isn't named, you know, Redskins is a huge group of, you know, kind of a generic or a big generic group where they're like, we are upholding the legacy of Chief Blackhawk. He's a single guy. We're not, you know, doing a character like the Cleveland Indians. I don't know how long they're going to be allowed to continue to say that name. Although the funniest thing was the supercut that. Adam and John had on no agenda, although I know there may be other people who think differently, but they had the cut of actual Native Americans going, no, no, we weren't offended at all by the Washington Redskins. We kind of like that name that was, you know, representing our culture. Right. It is. And that's the that's a hilarious subset of all of this nonsense going on is it's it's primarily driven by leftist white people. Right. And you will see that with the Native American arguments. You'll see that with a lot of different things. The the whole idea, just as the base idea of cultural appropriation, is so steeped in Marxism, it's so Orwellian, because uh, culture is not a living thing. It's, it's um, you know, an aspect of our lives. But in order for culture to even survive and spread at all, it has to be appropriated. It needs to be appropriated by someone. And so they want to set up gatekeepers of who can control and propagate and spread culture, but that's not how culture works. Culture spreads regardless. I mean, when I'm a kid coming up in high school uh, and I stumble into hip hop scene, uh, 
there's no skin color test in order for me to like a track or get into a certain artist or explore a culture. Um, and culture is going to spread. And the higher, uh, the more that you take, you try to take that away from people, the more resistance you're going to just create for it, you know? Um, but, but I think it's dangerous for culture. This, this whole idea of a cult- cultural appropriation, because it's, it's literally the only way it spreads. If you meet people from other cultures and they show you their traditions and their cultures, um, I, I've traveled a lot of places they, they, where they're proud of it. Um, and I met a lot of people from other countries too. They're, they're proud of their cultures. They're proud of their traditions and they'll show it to you. And if you, you know, replicate it in a way that's respectful, right. they will always be in favor of that. They will be always proud of that. And to take that away from them, I think is, it's just another piece of racism and they're disguising it as, you know, they're, they're the racist police that are going to save the world. Well, it's divisiveness again. That's the thing that I keep coming back with. All of this stuff is divisiveness. We had the video that we talked about on Grumpy Old Ben from a year or two ago with the white girl that was at a rap concert. I forget which artist. It doesn't really matter, but the artist pulled her up on stage. They start doing a song. She was singing along word for word and then dared say the N-word. And then she was called a racist. I'm like, wait a minute. She's a white girl at a rap concert, was pulled up on stage by the artist, given a microphone to sing along, and she's not supposed to say the word. Why? She obviously likes the artist. She likes the music. I don't think she's a racist. Yeah, it's like the double standard there. It's just like. How are you going to enforce that? Because then it's like, you're why would you, can you want set, to you can set traps for white people very easily by just like putting on a song that, right. uh, and, and you know, how dare we get else, them to like music? I, I would be a fool and a liar to say that I haven't, you know, wrapped along with all of these songs. And it's a big part of my upbringing in, uh, my cultural growing up in junior high and high school, you know, and, um, the area that I'm in, the friends that I have, the, the, the part of that culture, that word is embedded into the culture. And so to pretend like people don't go around saying it to each other, just like at parties, rolling weed, smoking weed, like you're <laughs> a on gin and juice. you're a fool to think that doesn't go on. You're a fool to think that we're all like strictly divided. I mean, with my friends and in my community, like the racial line thing is seen as like mostly childish and it is and it absolutely it is, is. It is childish and it's a, and a mechanism for controlling but like i just it is i think that uh it's it's getting harder and harder to use that against us thankfully thankfully i mean as much as we're saying like don't erase the history and and don't forget like we all still we all still know that history and for now i mean i guess that's the the question is the second generation like my two young daughters like if they're going to not teach them what happened and all of this racial strife, if they're just going to try to change the past on my kids, that's where we have to step in and say, no, this is what happened. This is why people are crazy about this certain thing. Like, you know, explain the past to them if they're going to try and rob it from them. Well, history is quite important and there, there's no doubt about it. And you say, you think we're getting better. I'm not sure. If we are, if we're getting better or we're getting worse, I played a track a couple of times on the No Agenda pre-show. Now, for the rock and roll pre-show before the No Agenda shows on Thursday and Sunday here on the No Agenda stream from the two live crew, 
from 1985 or 86 when the two live crew was big. And it was a live version of Band in the USA where they're talking about censorship and what uh, Luther Campbell of two live crew said as he went on this long rant, which I thought was great, which is why I've played it a couple of times, was looking out in the crowd and he's like, you know, I see black people, I see white people, I see Mexicans, and that pisses a lot of people off because they don't want us to be getting together. And the fact that that was 35 years ago and the same crap is still going on does yep. concern me. Yep. It's like, how have we not learned that by now? That this is all to divide even the stuff, the cop against the regular person, that's there. The yep. rich versus the poor, that's there. This constant divisiveness is how you're going. That Really, the divisiveness is your own shackles that is keeping you a slave rather yeah, than realizing that uh, you have freedom that's always to the the angle i've tried to take in when i do try to get involved and and be active and uh you know try to like do the little make a difference thing especially when i was in college i did a lot of activism and uh you know the police can be a, a thorny issue on a guy that comes up in the drug war reform movement because the police are kind of seen as the front line against it and like always the arm that's enforcing all of those unjust laws. So my approach was instead of like uh, throwing NWA on and saying, fuck police, my approach was like, well, where do we reach out? You know, surely there are police that also see through this scam. Right. And come to find out there are a lot of them. I'd, got involved with a group called leap law enforcement against prohibition and met a ton of cool, uh, current and ex cops, sheriffs, military, you name it, who had in one way or another enforced the war on drugs, seen firsthand, like the problems with prohibition and the like, uh, unforeseen consequences and how it really does make things worse rather than better. And you've got a whole organization of these guys who are willing to come and speak out on that. So really like, it's so easy and obvious and it stands out what divides us, what makes us different, what makes me weird, what makes you weird. We can see that and instantly recognize it. But I think it takes an extra step and a little more thoughtfulness to reach out and say, what actually, what do we have in common? What brings us together? We're not really that different. I mean, like, yes, I'm a, I'm a stoner with the long hair and mustache, weird looking guy, but like, I'm not that different from you also. I'm not some kind of radical out of their guy. Right. And there, that's what the whole, you know, libertarian kind of thing makes the most sense, which is sure. do whatever the hell you want, as long as it doesn't affect somebody else. So what you do in the privacy of your own home, I'm perfectly fine with that. That, sure, you know, it doesn't bug me as long as, you know, it goes both ways. And the th when it comes to the police, when you read things like the Bill Ayers manifesto for the Weather Underground. The police are viewed as the enemy because they're enforcing, you know, the will of the man. And there are some very unjust laws that are out there. I mean, the whole war on drugs. I mean, I think we can all agree, no matter what you believe about the damage that drugs can do, the war on drugs was a huge failure and it didn't work at all and caused probably more problems than it fixed. But yeah, here's the problem. Just, the same it, cops who are enforcing the war on drugs that most rational people can agree it was pretty stupid or it was just a futile thing anyway, are also the cops that 
are protecting women from being attacked or they're the ones protecting your property when a mob shows up at your door and saying you want to get rid of them because of the first thing and not understanding everything else that domino falling again here that what that reaction is going to be is just very short-sighted i don't think the people that are calling that are starting these rallies for defund the police i think know exactly what they're doing and we just have a whole lot of useful idiots in this country who just run along with things like that and go oh yay and never come to think then what happens when somebody attacks their mom sister wife then what right well and it's just another example of that group think trap just like we were talking about with race you know like you cannot think of you cannot personify the group aggregate group of cops because it's racially diverse, because it's gender diverse, because it's politically diverse, because it's a group of people that's in mil- the millions, the millions and millions. So uh, you've got to think of people as individuals, as people, and uh, start, you know, start locally. I think the laws locally are very much more important than the laws federally. Now, that's not the case now. Obviously, that's the case in a perfect world. But the case now is that the federal government has so much of an overreach and the states are not what they were intended to be originally. Um, and we've just gotten so far away from that individual liberty and that individual and local control and um, what the federated government was supposed to be originally. Well, that is one interesting thing about this virus. Although again, the news media is, uh, is borking this to push their own narrative, which a lot of people I don't think have any clue what the job of the federal government is as opposed to your local and state governments. I really don't think most people have a clue because when you start seeing these governors or in in our case here in Chicago with the beautiful mayor, Lori Lightfoot, talking about gun violence in the city, which is running more rampant right now than I think any time in my lifetime. Well, you know, we need a better federal. We need a better federal plan. It's like bullshit. We don't right, need a better yeah. federal plan. I mean, where is the federal plan in stronger implementation than in places like Chicago? I mean, is there a place in the country where there's like more feds? It's a very federal city, is it not? And well, that's, we have a lot here in Kansas City, but and it's a lot of gun laws. It's the harshest gun laws yes. in the in the country. Yeah, but have some of the highest gun crime, which then you start asking yourself yeah. these very inconvenient How exactly does questions. That happen? Yeah. It's almost like when you prohibit something, then you uh, only the criminals can have it. Isn't it? Isn't it kind of crazy how that ends up <laughs> by working definition? Out? By definition, it's it's uh, logic would tell you this, that if you look at the stats and see that the areas where there are the highest level of concealed carry permits, there's the least amount of violent crimes. But that's inconvenient for the other side to take a look at. Um, she right. talks about Chicago. And how easy it is to get guns. And I would love to see the stats on the percentage of guns that are recovered, that are recovered here in Chicago. What percentage were bought legally through a gun shop where they went through the background check? I'm guessing it's probably 5% on the high end. Hmm. So what will more background checks do? What will more laws do? Laws only stop people who are afraid of breaking the law. And I know it's. It's wild because I see, I still see questionnaires a lot, and this is how they'll word it most recently. It's like, do you support background checks? And a lot of Missouri Democrats run on, like, we need common sense background checks. And I'm like, 
all right, every firearm I've ever purchased, I had a federal background check. Like a background check was run every time I've ever bought one at a gun show, the supposedly loopholes. No, uh, at a store, uh, when you go and you purchase a firearm, they run a background check, they run a federal background check. So I don't under, I don't understand why there's like this big hairy push to do that. So it's already in place as far as I'm aware. Right. It's like you just keep adding more laws, but you're not enforcing the ones you have, which is the thing that drives me the most nuts when trying to argue gun control with anybody that is a liberal or on the left, because I say, well, okay, so if you're for these much harsher gun control laws, then if somebody commits murder, if somebody commits a crime with a gun, you must be okay with the death penalty, right? Like, well, no. Okay. Now, do you not understand what keeps people from breaking laws? And that would be the fear of the punishment that you're going to get if you break the law, because it's a very logical thing. It's very much like a computer program, which is, you know, I want to do this thing and there's going to be a repercussion if I get caught doing it. If the what's going to happen is I'm going to get a slap on the wrist as opposed to they're going to put me in a chamber and kill me. You're going to have a different thought about what you might or might not do. Right. Yeah, I would say so. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense. So if you're you can't. Yeah, it's, it's not all carrot. There's a lot of stick involved, too. You know, yes. If you're going to take away the punishment, the crime is going to run much more rampant. Well, we've already even seen it in the tiny example on the bail reform. You know, yes. the if if you can commit a crime uh, and like the thing is, you have to start out by thinking, imagine you're a criminal. Because that's what, like, <laughs> criminals exist. I've met a lot of them. Okay? Like, well, and let me uh, ask you this. They're out there. What do you so think, think of AOC's concept, which is, you know what, if we just get to them with, in, with programs when they're children and before they commit these crimes, if we have the right programs sure. in place, they'll never commit a crime. What I do you mean, think of that? I think she should elect uh, Vermin Supreme because he's going <laughs> to give everyone a pony, you know? Uh, or a unicorn. She's starting with that same assumption that these are all angels stealing loaves of bread because their babies are hungry. You know, that is not what's going on. Um, Like the thug and criminal element is smashing your shit in for their gain. That's what they're that's, you know, a big arm of their business. Um, So all of this prohibition, all of this extra war on drugs, everything that's created is a huge money making market for the biggest meanest most violent element in our society uh rather than incentivizing that both with carrot and stick policies so you know it it can't all be all stick either because people do respond to incentives but you can't just let the people who don't there there are plenty of people who don't respond to incentives that say i don't give a shit i'm gonna do this because i won't get in trouble or because there's no repercussions so there has to be a line and you have to be able to enforce it you have to say no you're harming this person and body you're harming the property uh you know people need protection in that sense and people need to be held responsible for the damage that they create and cause and the violence that they create and cause absolutely well yeah the personal property rights have to be upheld but there was one thing i will take positively out of watching some of these videos i saw one this morning i don't even remember where it was from maybe seattle because i know they had some more We'll just call them issues overnight in downtown Seattle. And it was security footage from, I believe, a beauty supply store. And they smashed out the door 
And the minute they smashed out the door, probably 30 to 50 people ran inside and grabbed whatever they could and ran out. And I just will ask you one question. Those people that did that, do you think they're uh, capitalists or Marxists? Because they're going to, they're going and grabbing stuff. Right. I, I mean, mean, the all of the blog posts I see uh, that are like rants about capitalism, you know, you can just see the person typing them on their MacBook Pro uh-huh. with a, a Starbucks big cup of hot milk with a splash of coffee in it that they call coffee. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a joke. They just uh, in order to be believing in a certain ideology, you have to at least like somewhat walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. And these kids are not willing to really walk the socialist walk because it, uh, it on a long enough timeline always involves abject poverty. Yes. And that's just not a place they want to go because they're pampered little fucks. Well, and that's it. And you've probably heard it if you've been listening to Grumpy Old Ben's, but that is my summation of the whole thing. And uh, Trihusker says they're criminalists, and that's probably right. But my summation on the whole thing is they see this concept of Marxism or communism as everybody's going to get to be Kim and Kanye when the reality is everybody's going to get to be poor. Not everybody is going to get their own jet and their own iPhones and their own right. MacBooks. Instead of you thinking, oh, well, this would be great. Everybody will be equal. We, were, Of course, if everybody's equal, we'll all be rich and famous right. we'll all there's have only, everything there's only room for one type of equality in the aggregate you know when it all is spread out when you have 7.8 billion people you know i mean even in a capitalist free place the the top is going to be super concentrated just naturally i mean it's naturally true for that in uh in terms of talent like if you look at the percentage of the human population that has produced the what, what we call the talented arts and music over the over the scope of time, it's an incredibly small percentage because a lot of that's concentrated in the population. Um, it's just statistically how it shapes out. So it's not like it, if you if you try to skew the result, all you're going to do is damage the result. You're going to have not the best art produced. You're going to have right. not the best ideas, the best culture, and that's really what we're living through right now. It's it's being watered down and dumbed down as we speak. It's why music has sucked for so long and. Obviously, there are exceptions to that, but like it's you have to do more to find good music. Look at the charts in the 60s and the 70s. Look at the charts, top 40s for the, you know, for my whole lifetime, the last 30 years. Like there's a stark, vast difference between those two charts and that music and that art that's produced. Well, and it's interesting when you go back to, I mean, if we go back to, you know, there's very early recording, but if we go back to the beginning of rock and roll and you understand that when, you know, in Sun Studios, when Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis or Johnny Cash back then would go in and record a song, it was done live and there was no editing afterwards. There was no auto tune. The yep. song was played live in a room quite often to like one or two microphones. Yep. And that was it. The, and physically recorded. Yes. On, on magnetic tape. And you hoped you didn't oversaturate it because otherwise you wouldn't have a usable product and you hope everything just worked out perfectly. And you now have the ability to change things on a note by note minutia to change, you know, to do a vocal pitch adjustment. You can move the, you know, a drum hit, which is just 
quite genius when you see how these systems actually work that oh they, the guy hit the drums one one thousandth of a second too quick well here just move that <laughs> right and it's like holy crap the things they can do which makes whatever you're going for let's just say perfect whatever that means one has taken away a lot of the excitement out of music and the intriguing thing though is the fact that i have better gear in the room and using to talk to you right now better gear than they had when elvis recorded those hits or when the beatles recorded their hits yeah so the technology doesn't necessarily um you would think it would make for the art to be open to more great artists who you would be able to get their stuff out there but the reality is it seems to be the opposite i know sir bemrose hates the gatekeepers and i do too but the gatekeepers served a purpose right well the the gatekeepers didn't go away. I think they've just changed because the gatekeepers used to be raw talent like that used to be, you know, and with the visual medium and newspapers and television, it became a bit more about looks too. And like it slowly started to dilute, but like in the beginning there was just raw talent when it was good music, it was good music. And that was all there was nowadays when you can manufacture a false raw talent you can take anyone and like you're saying perfect it uh auto-tune it make up it you can put anyone out there now the gatekeeping is okay here's our script will you read it here's our narrative will you follow it here's our god will you obey it and worship it that is the gatekeep now and so that's why you see a dilution of the talent because that's not where it's at anymore no and gene which is pointing out they did have some eight track machines that came out in the 50s but from what I understand, the Beatles, even at the end, were it was uh, very experimental for them to be using anything above a four track. And while there was some editing that could be done, tape splicing is a hell of a lot different than right. what can yeah, be done today. Cutting up and taping together like pieces of physical tape. And a lot of the stuff they did in those later years was, was genius, just, like groundbreaking stuff that no one had ever done before, just because they were like, you know, you know, I and mean, that was they, it, in the in the. I, you know, they wanted to find a new sound and they were doing so many things to try to figure out how to do that. Now, every kid coming up, you, well, you just push a button. No, you want that effect? We'll push that button. You want that right. effect? Push that button, turn that virtual knob. And, the, and, and there the, you go. And, you know, there is nothing new under the sun, which isn't to say mm-hmm. that there aren't great musicians out there. It's just that they're right. they're getting harder to find. So when you can see guys that will be able to play things live that's the that's the big thing i mean i remember reading something about aerosmith which you know somebody said you know they'll do a hundred takes on a song and you know if there's a hundred words in the songs it'll be a hundred takes and they'll take one word out of each take and splice them together and that's you know how a steven tyler vocal comes along and they were talking about you know how guys like eddie van halen even that was doing stuff in the studio that once you got out on the road was like, oh, shit, this is harder than I thought it would be to, to play this thing live <laughs> sure. because, you know, it's easy to do it in the studio when you can play four seconds of it and then, you know, play the next bit right. and splice when it all together. When stuff's really fast like that or really intricate, um, Lori and I saw a band, uh, Alt-J, that is really good in the studio and they have, tr- it seemed like they had trouble replicating it live for the same thing. It's sort of like a a more intricate thing going on. So um it still does happen to the to this day but it's kind of funny the difference between live and studio to talk talk about the Beatles you know they just like cut their lives out altogether, kind of 
the early mid part of their career just because it was like pointless to even tour. You couldn't hear yourself. You couldn't play. Everyone was just screaming nonstop. They'd get hassled everywhere they went. Yes. And once they started doing the the more intricate stuff in the studio, it's like, well, we could never play that live. Exactly. You know, they now can barely they can barely crank their rock guitars all the way up and just do like the the skiffle type stuff they started out with and have it play over the crowd. Like there's no way you could get a sitar over like a screaming crowd that they had. Yes. Now McCartney can walk out with a uh, synthesizer and just recreate the whole band and sit there by himself. So that's the beauty and the, <laughs> and the, uh, the downfall, I guess. I mean, I agree, Gene, Witch. the ability to produce music is a net gain. And I do believe that is a positive thing. It's just getting harder to find good stuff. There's way too much bad stuff like podcasts. I mean, there's way too sure. many bad podcasts. This one's probably one of them, although we appreciate everybody I, for listening I, I, and supporting I put one out myself. Yeah. I mean, you know, see, everybody uh, can have a podcast. You've got a podcast. You've got a podcast. There's a, you know, there's a little sliver of the universe that you can talk to. And so why wouldn't you take that opportunity? I suppose. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like the signal to noise ratio is crazy and you have to sort through it. I mean, people always talk about the information age and the internet age and, oh, it's all available at your fingertips <laughs> as though like you can Google the answer to literally anything. Uh, then why are there any questions left? Like we know that's not the case. There's more disinformation than ever and it's yes. easier to spread than ever. Uh, and so the truth, it, you know, philosophers have been waxing on for millennia of whether or not you can even arrive at something called the truth that we can agree on. So to pretend like we have the truth at our fingertips is, um, I guess a little arrogant, maybe to put it uh, politely. Well, yeah. And it is the disinformation age that really is the problem because whether or not you want to believe Donald Trump is a racist, there are a ton of websites that'll swear Donald Trump's a racist. And there's probably an equal amount on the other side saying he's not. So where is the truth? Nobody knows. Nobody really knows. And you just have to decide who you want to believe. I mean, I certainly don't believe a random family member who writes a book to make money because you're not. That's the one thing. It's like you're not under oath to write a book. I can write a book that says whatever I want it to say. I mean, granted, you might get sued over it, but. It's not quite like you're under oath and you're going to go to jail for writing a book that says something that turns out not to be true. So disinformation is a problem, which is why we all are in this no agenda tribe. Most of us, because yeah. we want to, even if you don't, and I don't think anybody should believe or agree with everything Adam and John say, I like their platform. Uh, I like their, uh, I like their process, not platform, sure. really the process of looking at who is saying what, and then going that one extra step and going, but why? In the case of this latest book that just came out from Trump's niece, it's like, well, why would she say this if it's not true? And then you immediately can go to, well, she had a million dollar book deal. Oh, sure. There's, there's plenty of incentive. <laughs> there's, there's a yeah. lot of incentive. And there's plenty. I mean, they hate his guts right now, you know? Yeah. And if you avoid looking for where the incentive is, you're going to miss out on the real story. I thought, you know, uh, to kind of take everything we've talked about today and put it into a clean little uh, nutshell of stuff going on. There was a cop in Portland, a black cop, believe it or not. I know that's horrible. That looked at the crowd of the people in Portland that have been rioting, that are supporting, you know, allegedly this big black lives matter crowd. And he made the comment that the police force 
in Portland had a higher number of black people than the crowd. And that should tell you everything you need to know about what's going on right now. Yeah. It's just like, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but like the groups and the individuals, they're like two different things. And really we need to just remember we're all people. We're all just people. Yeah. Get back uh, to there's not like a label that you can put on one guy to describe him just in one word. No. And you should never even try to do so. And I know that is, uh, I know Ben Rose, he has to be listening to this probably not live, although you never know. He said he was going to be off the grid, but that sure. is the one really hot spot for him is to generalize anything, which is well, to say leftists to, or Republicans sure. or white people or black people to play devil's advocate. Now it's, it, it's uh, useful as a starting point of like getting you to somewhere to a general idea, but you can continue to break it down over a relationship. I mean, uh, even take the name of the show. That's, that's three labels that kind of clue you into what's going to go on here. There's grumpy, there's old, there's Ben's. So, you know, you're, you kind of have an attitude there, you have an age demo, and then you have uh, an occupation. So you're already using that to kind of signal to people, hey, this is where I'm coming from. But by no means, I mean, you're two guys who all those three labels apply to, but you're not going to line up on everything and agree on everything. And right. uh, maybe there's something that comes up that you say, and all of a sudden I'm like, what? You believe that? And all of a sudden I think you're a moron and you think I'm a moron. And then like, you know, I've had it happen with great friends recently, even, you know, like where and things disintegrate quickly sure. along that line, which is why the one day he, uh, you know, Ben Rose kind of pissed off the pod father in the mm. troll room because he made a comment that Adam was looking at, you know, not that he was racist, but that he was looking at things, you know, in a racist way or something, mm-hmm. because in Bemrose world, the whole MoFax podcast shouldn't be necessary because it continuing to pound on everything in the in the uh, color of race through the you know lens of race is a better way yeah. to put it is taking things backwards rather than just in Bemrose world. I think you just go all this race shit is bullshit. We're all the same. Let's just move on. Right. And it's, you know, that's harder to do right now. It's uh, there's there's definitely the idea that it's already been bought and paid for with the blood of the Civil War. There's an idea that it has never been paid for. And there's an idea that it never will be paid for. So like that whole spectrum exists and like where we are on even as a society at any moment could change. So, um, but I definitely understand the sentiment. I love the Mo facts podcast because it's like, there's a guy laying out an articulate case for why he supports reparations. You know? Yes. I mean, uh, you don't have to agree with them. No, you don't have to agree with any of this. And some of us are right and wrong. I recently added in my <laughs> no agenda social profile, uh, has been proven wrong multiple times or some sort of thing along that line, because it's like, you know, Sometimes we mess up, we get it wrong, we think this, but it's actually that. We see a meme that wasn't true, but we believe it. I mean, uh, Adam recently was talking about how the back quarter is fake and it's not real. And like everybody knows the back quarter is real. It's a U.S. mint quarter. It's in circulation this year. Um, But, you know, these things just happen. I mean, we're human beings. We make decisions. We only have to go on what we are reading around us or what we're hearing from other people. And then we have to make gut decisions on like, how to build our reality off of that information and that input. It's incredibly tough job just to exist. Yes. Humans only have so much information and then there's only so much that can be absorbed. 
So that is absolutely right. Tri Husker said that the MoFax show teaches him things about black culture that he never knew, which is why it is a valuable show to listen to. Why it's fun to hear Adam taking the, uh, you know, more of the just listener role and learning role. And that's, that's been a whole lot of fun as well because Mo is uh, a very entertaining guy, a very, uh, you know, and that's something that if if you're going to be a podcaster, you have to have at least some energy. You have to be able to articulate what you're saying because otherwise nobody's ever going to, uh, you know, stick with you on the long run. But that's why I think it is important to check out what totally, completely different, diverse people are saying. And that's how you figure out where the middle ground is. And if when you hear things like Tri Husker said, I'm hearing something on this show yep. that I never heard anywhere else. Well, then you can go and do your own homework and see, is this true? Is this not yeah. true? I love it mainly because it gives me uh, a sympathetic, a sympathetic personification to put those ideas into, you know, it's like you can hear reparations and you can hear Al Sharpton say it and you can hear this person say it and you can hear that person say it and you can go, oh, fuck all of that. Then you have Mo Facts. That's a fucking guy I like. That's a guy who's like, you know, my friend who isn't my friend, you know, I listen to his voice all the time. And so then it becomes, okay, these ideas are explored from a place where this is my friend telling me like how he came to this. It's so much healthier uh, in political discourse to have that, I think. Well, yeah, you're going to take it much more seriously than the, you know, Jesse Jackson or Reverend Al types, because it's like, you know, they're doing stuff for their own gain. Right. Exactly. You know, the same thing here. And we do appreciate everybody that listens to Grumpy Old Ben's and supports us in all sorts of different ways. And uh, Sir Spencer, I mean, this is great because the minute I said, well, somebody want to replace Bemrose, I mean, <laughs> everybody else just kind of slinked into the background. Because, I mean, it's it's Ben Rose. Maybe nobody wants that kind of stink on him. But you were like the kid <laughs> in, you know, Welcome Back, Cotter. Like, oh, 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 over ooh, here, ooh, over pick here. Me, pick me. Pick me, Mr. O'Neill. And it's like, here, here we go again. I'm grumpy old Ben. I've been hungry Benz. lately. I'll admit it. I'll admit it. I've been hungry lately. Um, we just started doing that Bull After Bull podcast after it had been five years of hiatus, right? And then. Well, well that's a long hiatus for a podcast. It just, it was Pretty much like we could have just made a new show and a different show, but I kind of wanted to pick that back up because I had not even really got the show to where I wanted it to where I was like, cool, spreading it around. I think we had done like 20, 20 something, 26 episodes or something like that. So uh, Fletcher actually had us on Hog Story. Yeah, I heard that. You can you can blame him for getting us back into it because uh, we we did the interview, had a lot of fun. Uh, it's a very laid back format where it's just a conversation and there's no, you know, it's funny. There's no agenda, but like <laughs> there's even less of an agenda, right? Like they're not even at hog story. Uh, they don't even know what an agenda is agenda. <laughs> What's your agenda? <laughs> but that's really what made me realize, like I have this equipment in my basement. I have the ability. Uh, I really need to be trying to do something in that vein. And uh, the wife and I have been, working for a long time uh lorian's been working for from home since before our first daughter was born and i'm trying to transition myself to more of a gig-based and homework economy too and um it's also a way that i can give back to no agenda um not not necessarily the show itself but like the clips that i've been producing down here um it just kind of helps without like hitting the bank account being able to still give back in a way that like you can feel proud of as a producer Right. Which is there's Adam always goes down that whole list from everything from jingles and art to 
um, submitting the news stories and everything else. I mean, the monetary stuff is really important as well, but having thousands of producers who have content coming in, make the show unique every time out. It gives them the best fact checking out there instantaneously in the troll room during the show, which is always fun. Like uh, your artwork there on the last show yesterday. Yeah, we've been doing okay with the artwork. I mean, I know Gene Witch was calling us out before the start of the new year because last year there was a whole lot of issues with the art generator and nobody was getting new accounts. So it was a little easier to sweep through and get 33 (laughs) wins last year. But we're about on the same pace this year with a whole lot more competition. So it just comes down to spray and pray, throw your stuff out there. And I will say, I mean, I've been doing podcasts on and off for about as long if not even longer than how long no agenda has existed but most of them went the same way which is you get together with a buddy or something you start a podcast you do somewhere in that 10 to 20 25 episodes kind of sounds like where you went the first round and Mm -hmm. you end up looking at your stats which isn't always the greatest thing to do (laughs) if your name isn't adam curry or joe rogan or anything like that and when your stats after, you know, 20, 25 episodes are like, yeah, there's like uh, 18 people downloading the show. And uh, yeah, it, it becomes a question of, am I wasting my time? Should you continue Absolutely. to do this? So, I mean, unabashedly, we'll say we're taking the uh, at full advantage of being on the No Agenda stream, interacting oh, yeah. with everybody on No Agenda Social in the No Agenda tribe. and. They're a very diverse group of producers and very open to listen to new shows, not meaning that they're going to like it, but uh, far and above grumpy old Ben's has been the most downloaded podcast that I've ever done. And that's no small feat, um, no small reason because of no agenda without no agenda. It would just be no matter, doesn't matter how good the work you're doing is. You, if definitely you if you can't find an audience and it's really hard and yeah we we owe it to the community too we we were lucky in that when i when we were doing our first kind of round in 2015 and 2014 of the of the show for us it never really was like about downloads and audience we were doing it as another arm of all the activist causes that we were supporting and doing at the time um and just because of the way that activism shook down in our state and the weed laws rolled out, like we kind of got cut out of a lot of the core activism. And that's sort of what discouraged us to the point where we abandoned our own show and even abandoned podcasts a lot. I mean, it wasn't really a great time for us. Uh, um, just in the way things went out, it kind of got like bought and sold and the grassroots really kind of got sold down the river as far as the activism scene that went down here with our state uh, medical program. but. Um, I, we definitely owe a debt of gratitude to the no agenda community, pulling us back in and giving us someone to listen to, cause we'll do the show for, if two people listen, if one person <laughs> listens, if I know somebody heard it and like gives me feedback about it, I would do the show for one person. That is a podcaster's mentality. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, Bembrose, the first time yeah. somebody mentioned something randomly in the troll room that he had said on the podcast, he's like, you know, people listen. Like, yeah, yeah, that was kind of the point. You know, yeah. people are listening and they're taking uh, they're taking stock of what you're saying. They're supporting the show in all sorts of different ways. And even though this is a Monday bonus episode and he gets mad, we're calling him bonus because we've done a Monday show now probably 
five or six Mondays in a row and that we didn't announce this one because I was just going to take the day off. We still have a donor today, Harry Hamster coming in yet again. He is, I mean, kind of like a like a rat, just never leaving. You know, he's always there, keeps coming back for more. And we appreciate your support, <laughs> Harry Hamster. And yes, Gene Witch, uh, this is what happens in a podcast when your buddy just goes off into the mountains. He said with his wife, but uh, you know, he left her at home, which I don't know how that works either. That's a whole different conversation because, uh, you know, I don't I don't care what kind of a vacation it is. If I was like, yeah, honey, uh, I'm going off to Vegas. She'd be like, oh, hell you are. No, the last time that I went anywhere without Lorian was years ago, and she was very upset at me for it, for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, really, Maybe. the locks, if you're listening, uh, Dame Bemrose, don't, you know, don't change the locks on them or anything. I mean, unless unless you could actually tell you what, change the locks. And then set up a camera so we could have, you know, the full experience and then send us the video of that. That would be absolutely awesome. But it's been a whole lot of fun talking. to you. I'm glad you raised your hand and said you wanted to try to get a little bit grumpy. It's been a lot of fun talking to you, Spencer. Where can they find your podcast, The Bowl to Bowl, where? Uh, bowlafterbowl.com we finally have up and running it's a work in progress but uh, we're hosting through podbean so you don't have to go to the podbean url anymore i've got the uh, i've got the episodes on bowlafterbowl.com and then we do it tuesday nights at 10 p.m so we're going to do another one tomorrow night and fletcher last week got us onto the hog story stream so we've been streaming there which has been fantastic so uh yeah if you're interested in a podcast about i don't know two quasi nudist stoner hippies who are kind of drug war veteran activists uh that's the, that's the show in a nutshell that's the hell of an elevator pitch i know right <laughs> <laughs> hey but you know that I'm fits on in just enough of a bowl to give the pitch <laughs> that fits in perfectly on the hog story stream i mean if you think the people on the no agenda stream are crazy head over it is sir Saroma's correct it's the uh only clothing optional weed podcast in the universe which is why they don't have the video feed. Well, or maybe you do. I don't know. That's <laughs> we, we do have a video feed. See, there you go. Members only, though. It's only OnlyFans, though. So it gets, a, it gets you like instantly split the crowd. You know what I mean? It's very polarizing. So, I mean, but any, any other place would deplatform us for, for just being naked. And then OnlyFans, you can do like literally anything. So <laughs> until they said, yeah, there's they, a big gap. If they we start deplatforming the there, then you got a problem. Definitely. Definitely have a problem there. And with that said, until next time, I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chirac, where our barbecue is good, but it's, it's not as good as Kansas City. Yeah, absolutely right about that. Hey, thanks for having me so much. I've been Sir Spencer. Thank you, Sir Spencer. And until next time, everybody, thanks for hanging with us on the No Agenda stream. We will be back on Friday, I think, with phone boy filling in for the grumpy Ryan Bemrose.